To God be the glory for the wonderful things that God has done. For that which we anticipate God to do in this preaching hour, and even for that that God is doing right now. What a mighty God we serve. Howdy. It is indeed an honor and a privilege to be here with you, Northminster Baptist Church. I'm thankful to your incredible congregational leaders this morning, Sister Puckett, Reverend Treadway, and Radliff, and also to all of you. Because as the Dean of Wake Forest University School of Divinity, it is the strong partnership between our work in Winston-Salem and your call in this part of the vineyard in Jackson, Mississippi, that has proved so edifying over the decades for our shared and collective work. And that's one of the reasons why we're here in Jackson this week. We're here because we are just want to make sure that we continue to nurture, to feed, and therefore concretize this strong relationship. Now, when I was in college, I was taught an African proverb and it said, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And I'm so glad that I'm a part of a team and part of a community at Wake Forest University School of Divinity and here in Northminster, where we understand our collective work and we go together because that is indeed how we will go far in fulfilling the call to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God. And it has been the intimate ties of members of our Board of Visitors and members of our communities as well as our students that come right from this rich community. Uh, I'm looking at Rebecca and Mark Wiggs. I'm thinking about precious, my dear sister, now in Winston-Salem, Gloria Martin and her late husband, Jim Martin. I'm thinking about the Finkelbergs, as well as all of the members, including our Board of Visitor Chair, Mark Boyce, and all of the members of Wake Forest University School of Divinity. We have professors, assistant deans of, of vocation and art of ministry, our director of admission, our assistant dean of development, all here with us. I told you, I don't go alone. <laughs> and we are here, and we hope that our presence here with you this morning underscores our appreciation. We pray that our presence with you demonstrates our commitment to this mutually edifying partnership, even now as you search for a new pastor. And for years to come, that you might look to Wake Forest University School of Divinity as a place that produces the type of ministers that would be worthy to serve in this vineyard with the honor, dignity, 
act, passion for justice, of that incredible man whom we have a scholarship named after, Chuck Poole. Thank you, Northminster. The gospel, we've heard it. It's been read for your hearing. And with your prayers and the Holy Spirit's power, I'll speak for a few moments this morning from the topic by and by today. By and by. Will you please join me in a brief word of prayer? Lord, I need your help. Amen. My friends, I love Luke's gospel. Ever since I was a child, there's something about the vivid imagery, the colorful character descriptions, the miracle accounts are many and memorable, and the parables are relatable and applicable. It was as if the book of Luke was written for my spiritually developing self. It struck just the right tone of interpretive accessibility for my adolescent mind. Now, I didn't realize the time, the reason for this. For unlike Matthew and Mark, Luke's gospel was intended for a larger audience in antiquity. Luke acts intended to introduce the ethical life and teachings of Jesus. It intended to teach the establishment and the expansion of the Jesus movement outside of Judaism within the larger Roman Empire. Compiled in the late first century and possibly well into the second, one New Testament scholar refers to Luke's gospel as the great novel of the Gentile world. It's an early form of narrative theology. Biblical stories constitute the ethical paradigm. And the actions of its characters exemplify the ethical ideal. Consider the many parables in the book of Acts. When we think about Luke Acts, consider the many parables. Luke Acts intend to tell a story about how God regards and receives us. The kingdom of God is like a woman, a woman who had ten coins. If she loses one, will she not sweep and clean the whole house until she finds that one? Why? Because one life is just as precious as any sum collection in God's kingdom. 
Each soul is of value. Each life has dignity. In God's equation, among 100 lives, each one has equal value to any other 99. That's how God's kingdom works. Or the kingdom of God. It's like a father with two sons, Luke teaches us. One son is disciplined and dependable. The other is incompetent and irresponsible. One is conscientious. The other is carefree. Yet even though the inept and immature son blows through his inheritance and squanders his heritage, when he realizes the folly of his ways, How does the father respond? That father throws a great feast and welcomes him back into the fold. This is emblematic of God's love. Or how even should we think about our neighbor? Yes, Luke, when a man is besieged by thieves, left for dead, it was not a member of his racial, ethnic, or national group that stopped for succor and support. It was not his church member, nor was it a member of his political party. These are the categories that we privilege. These are the biases that we bake into our calculus of care and compassion. Oh, but in God's kingdom, the folk whom you look down upon those who were not worthy of my time and attention, the proverbial Samaritans whom we viewed superciliously with disdain, these are the very people that God calls us into beloved community. Luke Acts teaches us this. Oh, so the Gospel of Luke attempts to teach us how God regards and receives us. The Gospel of Luke is trying to teach us how we should regard and receive one another. These narratives break down the gulf between God and human responsibility. Luke is offering more than lessons regarding God's love for us. These are lessons about what God's love demands from us. Luke is offering more than about what God's kingdom looks like in the hereafter. But rather, the tradition is offering us a challenge for what God is calling us to do, God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Thus, these lessons are not just about God's kingdom by and by when we die, when the morning comes. They're about what we ought to do and how we ought to comport our lives right now. And this is what we witness this morning in the lectionary text, the 16th chapter of Luke. We meet two characters of stark contrast, two equal souls that reflect vast social disparity. One is like many of us. His body adorns the markers of cultural distinction. He's dressed in fine linen. He lives luxuriously. He eats sumptuously. The other man, however, 
is seemingly unhoused and hungry. He'll eat scraps from the table, and he clearly lacks medical care as his body is covered with sores. But if you notice something when you read this gospel story, in this parable, besides the physical descriptions, the author does not attribute a moral position to either character. The story does not describe the rich man as evil. There's no reason for us to believe that this rich man stole his money, nor is there evident that the rich man was mean or rude to Lazarus during their respective lifetimes. Maybe the rich man was considered a nice guy. One might infer that he wasn't even aware of Lazarus' existence outside of his gate. And similar is true of Lazarus. We don't know anything about his biography. The, the, the gospel writer doesn't give us that kind of insight. Luke doesn't give the reader any sob story to pull on our heartstrings. The gospel writers do not delineate whether Lazarus was among the quote-unquote deserving poor that cruel category of judgment that has become part of our public policy parlance. Maybe Lazarus was born into poverty. Maybe Lazarus was profligate and promiscuous, just like many rich people. <laughs> or maybe illness and disease propelled him into poverty. Who knows? We don't know. The point is that their respective personality traits do not seem to matter here in this story. The emphasis on the story is not on their individual personalities. Luke places the emphasis on the social chasm that separates them. The gross markers, the gross markers of gross inequality that rendered their respective existences normal. Consider the rich man who's wrapped in purple, eating sumptuously, as the Bible says. Verse 19. Those who told this story in the ancient world, they knew exactly what they were doing. This purple, this was a color reserved for royalty and high-ranking families. The story, they appealed, the storytellers, they appealed to sumptuary laws, laws that forbid ordinary citizens from possessing certain food, certain clothing, certain goods. Because this is how, in the ancient world, like in our world, this is how social hierarchies were enforced. This is how aristocratic and elite status for the few is normalized. Or consider the gate that separates them, a gate that renders some invisible to others, a gate that theologically signifies the great chasm, one that is impenetrable and immutable when one ends up in Hades and the other one sits at the bosom of Abraham. And if we contrast the rich man's existence with Lazarus, 
We see a man who just longs for the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. And in the ancient world, this image is even more insulting than many of us can imagine today. For in ancient Greece, the wealthy often used to use bread to wipe the grease from their hands in the same way that we use napkins. And then after they would wipe the grease from their hands, they would take those pieces of soggy bread and they would toss it up under the table for the dogs to consume. A tremendous social gulf that separates them. Lazarus is a man whom the gates of access and affordability taunt. He's a man whom the markers of status and social demarcation further dehumanize. And it's this concern, my brothers and sisters, that we as a Christian church must keep at the forefront of our ethical consciousness. We have to ask ourselves each day, what are our taken for granted customs that contribute to the great chasms in our society? What are our daily practices that reinforce the gates of privilege for a few at the expense of many? How is it that some of us are seemingly immune and absolutely unaware of the pains, problems, perils, and perplexities that so many of our neighbors face on a daily basis? We drink fine wine while others in other cities, other areas, other communities don't even have water to drink. We do not have the courage to ask ourselves such questions. Then we invariably refuse to heed the warnings of the prophets, like in this parable. If we cannot work to find solutions, then we contribute to the exorbitant gulf that will ultimately entomb our souls and afflict our humanity. This is the work. to which we are called. And in many ways, Northminster, this is why in 2019 I wanted to join the inspiring work of Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Because our institution was hewn out of a similar ethical ideal, a similar moral clarion call. How do we eradicate the social and theological barriers of distinction that divide us? Oh, because it was a few decades ago, just a few decades ago, that some of our Baptist brethren decided to drop their anchors in the harbors of exclusion and intolerance. It was those Baptist men that decided to establish their own set of sumptuary laws regarding whom was fit to do what based upon theological tradition and gender. They decided to erect the gates of anti-intellectual dogmatism with their theological heresy of certainty. And it was out of such unfortunate circumstances, though, that men and women envisioned a new school of theological training on the campus of Wake Forest University. 
a new school that would embrace all of God's children, namely the ones whom mothers chose to reject, a school that would train and prepare women and men. That's why about 80% of our first class at Wake Divinity was all women. Women and men that certain denominations had no use for a school in the southern region of these here United States, a school that would denounce old heritages of hate toward cultivating new legacies of love. And like Luke's parable of the dinner banquet, we looked beyond those who believed that they divinely deserved the purple linens of God's call and the fine meals of the ministry profession. We looked beyond them and we went out beyond the gates, into the highways and byways, sought out the victimized and the villainized by toxic theologies and, 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 and theologies of hate and exclusion. And we said to them, like the gospel writers, that there's plenty of God, good room right here at God's table. And since 1999, Wake Forest University School of Divinity has equipped students to be agents of justice, reconciliation, and compassion, architects of hope, equity, and healing. The faculty has taught students that it's not enough to welcome the stranger. We have to interrogate logics that render some people strange in the first place. It's not enough to clothe the naked and feed the hungry. We need to better understand the source of vast food deserts and diminishing resources throughout this country. And ministry is not just about how much the pastor can earn for a living. But in it, ministry is about earning a life that's worth living. And we, Northminster, consider you, this congregation, an essential part of our work. From Winston-Salem to Jackson, from the United States throughout the global south, there are too many Lazaruses sitting right outside of our gates. There are too many who long for the daily realities that you and I often take for granted. And there are too many of us who are blinded by the great indifference of our own You know, of all of the miracle accounts and parables in the book of Luke, it's interesting that this man in today's text is the only one whom the writers tell us his name. Not the rich man, but Lazarus. Lazarus. Greek, the Greek form of the Hebrew Eleazar which means God helps. God helped Lazarus in the afterlife. But the writers are challenging us to help ourselves, to help our communities, to help our nation, to help our world in this life. God helps. And God is calling us to help. Not just in helping people to see the hereafter, but to helping us to see one another today. 
Not just by and by when the morning comes, but right now. Not just when we all get to glory, but rather heeding the prayer on earth as it is in heaven. By and by, today, God helps us. Thus we do likewise.